This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari McKenna. I am taking some time off for the holidays, so instead of new episodes, there will be a series of highlights from past conversations. This one is from the very first episode with Professor Patricia Churchland. In the episode, we had started by discussing Churchland's outlook on the origins of unselfish concern, which gives a kind of platform for a morality to evolve. After a lengthy discussion on various ways of approaching morality from this brain scientific approach, we tend to discuss possible counterarguments. One of them being a very important one that is on the minds of many people, which is the problem of moral responsibility and free will. If our decisions can be traced to our neuroscience, our biology, to what extent can people be held responsible for their decisions? I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. Happy New Year. Okay, well, I guess we could talk a little bit about the broader implications of what we talked so far. So I guess there's two kinds of uh, counter-arguments. One, that we have uh, learned almost nothing because, yeah, it's interesting for many people to learn a little bit about the brain, etc. But we learned about the mechanism. We don't learn about anything else. And then the inverse would be to say that we've learned too much. And I want to focus first on this too much point. The argument here would be that it's all about the brain. Therefore, there is no free will and therefore there is no moral responsibility. And so we have done enough neuroscience of morality to learn that morality does not exist. What is your take on that? Oh my goodness gracious. Well, the issue of free will is not quite that simple. And we know that there are differences in the brain between somebody who is operating under a compulsion and somebody who is able to consider alternatives and, and make a decision. So I think it's a little early in the game to say that we know from neuroscience that there's no such thing as free will. I mean, we know there's no such thing as a decision without any causal antecedents, but causal antecedents are not by themselves the end of free will. Some causal antecedents precisely allow for making a very long-term, deliberative, careful decision. You know, we've got a lot to learn about the way decisions are are made, including the way moral decisions are made. And at the moment, of course, it's very difficult to directly study that in in human brains. But uh, some of that may change with the development of, of new tools and techniques. In the question of free will, would you basically take the classic compatibilist approach, which is to say that fair enough, um, our decisions have causes, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't decide. I mean, the neuroscience can tell us how yeah. we decide, but it's still a decision. Yeah. Therefore, we should hold people responsible for their decisions. Something along those lines. Yeah, I, I, th- I think probably something like that. Until I'm, I'm shown, uh, you know, a, a reason for thinking about it very differently, I would say, yeah. Uh, and of course, when we hold people responsible, we're giving them negative feedback. Uh, the negative feedback becomes, if you like, constraint. It becomes a factor in your brain for deciding whether or not you're going to go ahead with a difficult decision. In a criminal justice system, not in the current criminal justice system, but in your utopian perfect criminal justice system that you can imagine, how differently would you treat the following four people? 
first one has a brain tumor that is linked to antisocial behavior. The second one has something that we might call psychopathy, which we have reasons to believe is linked to abnormal genetics. Third one has something that we again might call psychopathy, but it can be linked to adverse experience abuse in their childhood. And then the fourth one just seems to be a pretty healthy person who's very greedy and, uh, and wants to be antisocial for their own benefit. How differently would you treat these four cases in your perfect criminal justice system? I find, you know, the perfect criminal justice system really hard to, to evaluate. And, I, I, you know, it's like some thought experiments in philosophy, which, which just kind of go off the rails. And, and, and I think this one does just kind of go off the rails. Obviously, you know, a person who has a brain tumor that affects his, his sociability, it kind of depends on what it did. I mean, let's suppose all of the, each of these four individuals took great delight in torturing for hours little children and then killing them. Well, we're not going to say about any of them, oh, well, heck, you know, you had a tough childhood or you've got bad genes. Off you go. You can go home now. I mean, we're not ever going to say such a thing. Are we going to string them all up and hang them because they're, they've all done a bad thing? Well, no. I mean, even the criminal justice system as it currently stands takes those things into account. But you can't, if somebody through, through, let us suppose, genetic considerations ends up uh, doing terrible things, you can't just say, well, heck, you know, you didn't pick your genes, so go hold. I don't really know what we're supposed to say about a, a situation like that. Could we change the genes and hence change the brain? Maybe someday. Could we remove the tumor and alter the person's behavior? Maybe. It depends on the tumor. It depends on the behavior. And certainly the parents of the children who were tortured were going to have to have something to say about this. And if, if you just take out the tumor and say, well, now go ahead and uh, live your life, they're apt to take justice into their own hands. And you don't want that either. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't think there is an easy answer. I mean, I recognize the difference between the description of the four instances, but at the end of the day, we want to know how to prevent this from happening again. And at the moment, our tools for achieving that are, are fairly crude. And then somebody says, yeah, but, you know, suppose you had tools where what you could do was put a brain cap on and you could then control their brain so it would never happen again. Like, well, holy crap. I mean, that's not something I, I, I can get my mind around because I don't know what you're talking about really. And that makes me, I mean, I know philosophers hate it when I say things like that. They say, well, you're just a flat-footed philosopher. You've got no imagination. Well, okay, fine. But that's the world I live in. It's a very practical, flat-footed world. That's the world I have to make decisions in. <laughs> yes, 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 I see. Uh, I guess the, the best way for me to appreciate the oomph of the question is that there is a famous case, for example, of, of a middle-aged man who developed predatorial tendencies with a brain tumor. And every time they get the tumor out, the behavior goes away, etc. And in that case, I think it's very easy, for example, for his family members to say that this is about a mechanical problem in the brain. This is not my dad who's really doing it. 
And then the question is, when we have someone for some not so obvious reason behaves in a way we don't like, yeah, yeah. we tend to want to be able to attribute it to the character in a different way. And this is where some so-called critics of free will, although the, I don't think the terms really matter so much, would say that that is an unwarranted attitude. We should always take the attitude, the kind of compassionate attitude that we take towards this poor guy with a brain tumor towards every single act of antisocial behavior, because they always have their reasons for it. That would be a case where I can, I can see the point in a, in a rather well-fleshed out way. And it's not science fiction. This is, this is what people have to do every day. You ask, how do we judge this character after they did something wrong? First of all, I know the case you're talking about with regard to the brain tumor. And the follow-up in that case suggests it was nothing like as, as this simple description. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So that's thing one. And that often happens. Thing two is notice that in that case, what he did was molest, but not in a really super serious way. He molested his stepdaughter. Suppose it had been that he tortured the little girl across the street. Would you take the same view? Well, you take the tumor out. Now he's fine. I bet not. In any case, it's a complicated case. And we don't really, really know how to deal with it hmm. and how to generalize from it. And the other case involving genes is this. There is no such thing as a gene for psychopathy. There is no such gene for any, any sort of temperamental behavior or temperamental feature. There are hundreds and hundreds of genes, as you know, that are interacting and making very small contributions and interacting in very complicated ways. If we thought there was just a single gene, well, then, you know, you might be able to do something or you might be able to feel compassion or whatever. But for nothing like antisocial behavior or totally selfish behavior, do we know that there is a single gene or even two genes? It isn't like that. And so, you know, to be fair, it means that the thought experiment can't reach into my compassion one way or the other. My compassion doesn't know what to do. Hmm. Do you want to share quickly what was the complication? I mean, because this is such a well-known example. Learned well, about. there was some evidence that his long before he had any sort of a tumor of his having these kinds of interests and, and for continuing to have them afterwards, but not saying anything to the psychiatrist. So, I mean, why would he? He may have used it as an excuse for not being punished and the endocrinologists that, that I know about say that the location of the tumor was such that there was no real reason to think it had anything to do with sexual matters. Maybe it did. There's so much we don't know yet about the brain. I would just be very, very cautious about drawing any kind of a conclusion. But I mean, at this point, you know, as philosophers say, yeah, but suppose it was like that that there was a tumor that you could take in and out and would grow back and that really did that thing. Then what? And then I, I you know, again, I have to say, you know, the world is very complicated and, and you want me to give a simple answer and I'm not going to mm -hmm. give you a simple answer unless I know a way lot more about all of the relevant facts here. 
Many philosophers think that that's a failing on my part, but I think it's a failing on the part of philosophers that they want these silly, ring-a-ding little thought experiments to be capable of drawing really deep and really profound implications about things. Okay, well, we have now dealt with one of the two <laughs> possible counters that I, I laid out, this being the, Ooh, we've learned too much, therefore morality cannot exist. But then there is the other one, which is that we haven't learned all that much. For example, in review for the Harper magazine, uh, critically, Hart writes, out of a vast tangle of neural connections might emerge a consciousness capable of producing Ulysses or a whole system of moral thought and action. Yet it seems uncontroversial to suggest that you can glean more about what it means to live and think by reading Ulysses than you ever could by shoving James Joyce inside an MRI machine. Unquote. And I think this is a, a pretty common response to your work. For example, a similar comment would be from Olivia Goldhill writing for the New York Times. Church and an engagement with neuroscience makes her an unusual figure in philosophy, and her endeavor is certainly worthwhile. It would be more impressive, though, were she less eager to reject philosophical methods in her embrace of neuroscience. Our moral intuitions may well be grounded in biology, but Churchson fails to explore the most pressing questions of when or even if we should rely on such intuitions as a guide. Unquote. So this kind of, well, it's all very interesting if we are interested in the mechanism, people who want to learn how this thing happens in the body should absolutely read neuroscience, but we don't learn all that much from it in a more general sense of what it means to be moral, what is the right way to organize society, et cetera, et cetera. What would be your response to such critics? There are many ways of learning about these things. And if, if you want to answer certain questions about your own life or about the nature of morality and you want to read Ulysses, by all means, do it. But, I mean, it's a bit like, it's a bit like, you know, we, at a certain point in, in human scientific history, we didn't really understand what life was. And, and there were many people who were vitalists in the sense they believed that a thing lives by virtue of being endowed with the living force. And that was the hard problem of vitalism. Well, turns out that, you know, once you know a lot about DNA and RNA and mitochondria and, and cell membranes, ribosomes and how proteins get made, that vitalism doesn't look so cool. Now, if you, if you want to know about the nature of livingness itself, you know, by all means, go and, and read, I don't know, Tolstoy or somebody. And reading novels is a great joy. And so I'm not for a moment suggesting that people shouldn't read novels. I am suggesting, though, that, that our social nature has a very deep biological basis. And if you really want to be a philosopher and be a know-nothing philosopher, then, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm just not interested. 
And that's not because I'm depressed and materialistic and don't read novels and so forth. It's because I have certain kinds of questions to which I think we might be able to get answers if we explore the neurobiology of it. And I find that really exciting and fun. And if philosophers don't, then they should do something else. Yes, I, I, I guess in a way, the most obvious import of, of the biological work is that it demonstrates in a very undeniable way the depth of the matter when we talk about morality and sociality, that it is not just habits acquired like a fashion, which certainly is an idea that is floated around a lot. And I do appreciate y y your work amongst with many other biologically minded people on, on, on just how deep these things go. Yeah, I think they do go very, very deep and we've really only scratched the surface.